Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very excited and very happy to bring the conversation I had with Blair L. M. Kelly. Uh, Blair is an award-winning author, historian, and scholar of the African-American experience. She is currently the Joel R. Williamson Distinguished Professor of Southern Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill and director of the Center for the Study of the American South. She has um, a a bachelor's, master's, and PhD all in uh, history and has uh, certificates in African-American studies and women's studies as well. She is the author of two books, uh, the most recent, Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class, uh, which is what we talk about in this conversation. She talks about why she wanted to write the book with some biographical elements along with historical fact. And she talks about this kind of narrative way of, of uh, telling history, which I think is, is, is wonderful. Uh, she talks about why when we talk about the working class, we many times think of white working class and how the working class is a big tent and there's – uh, many different uh, races and ethnicities, including uh, uh, African Americans. We talk about class and race and those themes for black Americans. We talk about the impact of slavery on working class uh, black Americans. Uh, we talk about the role of the church for building and organizing community. We talk about the history of black washerwomen and their involvement with unions interactions of uh, black women workers with white uh, women, the Great Migration, uh, Porter Union, black maids, and current themes with the black working class. I have to say, um, I greatly enjoyed her book. Um, It was really, really informative for me. I didn't know a lot of the information here. And I think that that's right. She, She rightly says in the conversation that you know, black history is American history, and I and I firmly ag- agree with that, um, and and all of the aspects of, of history, and that's super important. And uh, it's it has been unfortunate that for um, much of the history we learn in you know primary school and secondary school is uh, not a lot of perspectives that are shown, um, whether it's with Native Americans or whether it's um, uh, black Americans, you know, we kind of learned the kind of basics, but, um, we're now, I think having a more robust and balanced view of history in the United States. And I think maybe, maybe globally as well, that's looking at all perspectives and uh, that's, that's super important. And, um, uh, Blair is, is absolutely lovely. She's super brilliant. Um, I, I so enjoyed this conversation with her. And um, her book is is absolutely wonderful. You can find this conversation and all other conversations at uh, convergingdialogues.substack.com. So go over there and subscribe and share with your friends. And um, also on YouTube, same thing, Converging Dialogues. And so now I bring you Blair L.M. Kelly. I'm here with Blair L.M. Kelly. Blair, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm super excited for your book, which we're gonna we're gonna talk all about. the The book is uh, Black Folk: The Roots of the Black Working Class, and it's out everywhere, and everyone should go pick it up. 
before we get into it, though, why don't you tell listeners uh, who you are, what your background is professionally, academically, and uh, what you're currently up to? Well, I consider myself a historian of the Black experience, and um, I've been doing professional historical work in the university setting for a long time. I'm currently the Joel R. Williamson Professor of Southern Studies at um, UNC in Chapel Hill. Very nice. And I'm the incoming director of the Center for the Study of the American South, which I'm really thrilled to be at the helm of. Oh, nice. Congrats. That's very nice. Thank you. That's right. So, so what what you're telling me is that you're just you're just busy all the time. That's what it is. You're just I busy. have been busy for a, a minute. I'm busy for a minute, but I, you know, I I call it a blessing to be busy at the thing that I, that I love to do. So absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I guess this this book was great, and 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 big thanks for for you and your team sending it to me and letting me read it. Um, I want to ask kind of a little bit. In terms of the the style in which you decided to do this, so a lot of the book has biographical elements uh, mm-hmm. uh, from from your own family historically and, and even more more recently, uh, which I think is what kind of really mm, makes the makes the book come alive a lot more. Uh, it feels very honest and and raw in some places, you know, authentically mm-hmm. so, which was which was great. It just gives it a lot of life into more just facts and history and things like a lot of history books do. I guess what was your kind of intention or or reasoning for kind of incorporating your own family history along with talking about uh, many, many aspects that a lot of folks won't know about uh, American history and, and Black American history? So for me, you know, I love to write and I I love poetry. I love reading. I love novels. I love um, <clears throat> my favorite author is Toni Morrison by far mm-hmm. um, of any genre. And her ability to draw in bits of history to a narrative was inspirational to me from the very start of my um, thinking about the possibility of being a writer. And so when uh, you teach history, you end up with a lot of students who are like, I hate reading history (laughs) and I never, it's so boring. And when you do run into a book that they love, um, you, you take note. Mm-hmm. And I was noting that a lot of the histories that people loved had this more narrative style, mm-hmm. were drawn through the, the stories of people. Um, I did a Twitter survey one year, several years ago, and I said, what's your favorite history book? And, and Warmth of Other Sons blew everybody out. And that that warm, personal version of telling um, a, a, a national narrative was what people were so excited about. And so I was like, well, why can't academic historians do this work, too? You know, mm. Why can't we tell stories in ways that are not just focused on the ways we want to debate or discuss ideas with each other, but also pull those ideas into a more personal, a more raw, a more real way of thinking about this history. And and for me, I I think this way, I teach this way. I talk about my mother, I talk about my grandparents Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. when I teach. And so it was natural for me to to say, okay, this is how I'll have to tell the story. As Mm -hmm. I I began to propose the book, um, their stories kept flying into my mind as the way that I would want to narrate it, Mm -hmm. along with 
you know, thinking through the, the process of oral histories. I'm, I'm an avid oral historian. I've, I've taught that for um, more than a decade. And I, it was one of the first things I did as a historian at, at Duke University was participate in a project called Behind the Veil. Mm. And so people's lives as history really is the, the frame for, for which my mind works. And so it was a natural fit uh, to do that again here. Mm. Yeah, no, I think one of the biggest things about it is that it, it makes it just so relatable. I mean, I'm sure there's a, a different, um, you know, way in which it can be uh, relatable to to other Black folks reading this. But even for folks like myself, I'm, I'm obviously not uh, Black, but to to read it, it's like, you know what, There's these are human stories and these are fellow American stories. And obviously there's a lot of, a lot of dark chapters, but, you know, it's a way of having this kind of connection and this ability to kind of relate, which is, uh, I just found super powerful and, and super captivating. And it was, uh, it made out, it made all the other, you know, uh, facts and details of, of history, uh, less boring and things to gloss over. It's <laughs> like, Oh, well, how can, now I'm kind of interested. I've got the narrative part. Let me read all the other stuff of what happened. And so it is a, it is a very nice kind of compliment there. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that appealed to me about the book was, uh, the black working class. And so we can, kind of in the beginning here we can talk about the working class so i find like politically a lot of people talk about the working class and a lot of people i think you know maybe um not intentionally so but i definitely think it happens is when people talk about working class they think about white folks white working class you know in rust belt states and all the states we care about every four years for a presidential <laughs> election. <laughs> yes. Right. And we talk about Rush into Ohio. <laughs> right into Michigan and Wisconsin. Right. Yes. And um and certainly those <laughs> folks are are important. I just say all, all folks in the US are important. Um, but I think a lot of the times people think about the working class, and a lot of the times they typically think, you know, the white working class. Um, and you know, I'm not I'm not too sure where all of that kind of comes from. But I, I guess the one thing that I'm most interested in, and, and there has been more conversation about this, I'd say, in the past couple of years, I said, like, well, wait a minute. The working class is Black folks. It's it's uh, Latin folks. It's white folks. It's it's a lot of different people that mm-hmm. are in that that tent, that big umbrella. And so what is it that you're trying to show in the book and obviously through your work of why we haven't explored that history of at the very least a wide racial kind of tent of the working class and why um you know what makes the kind of uniqueness of the the black working class in the united states um so important to kind of understand and and maybe what you're trying to do here with the book i think the country has had a habit of not including Black people in the working class, in part because of enslavement and of segregation and sort of the disassociation that they had uh, for Black people as full citizens, right? So for most of our history as a country, Black people weren't full citizens and uh, they were enslaved. They were subjugated under segregation laws. They were prevented from voting. And so the habit, you know, when you think of citizen is not to think of a, a person of color. Um, the normative citizen is a, is a white male person. And so um, it takes some real thinking and some real pushing to say, well, you know, let's reframe 
how we think of the working class and, and whose voice might matter. Uh, in the recent elections, we've seen that the voice of the Black working class mattered pretty significantly with the coming of folks like Stacey Abrams, who basically said, no, if we go from community to community um, and really talk to Black voters, Black working class voters, they'll come out, they'll be actualized, they'll understand where they they fit in um, in this voting process. Um, and she's she's not the first. She's, she's really, you know, the latest to sort of understand the power of those communities, um, their interest. Black voters are um, more working class than any other set of voters in the country. So it's just um, an interesting mind game to to constantly separate Black people from their labor, from their place in society, um, and from the real service that they provide uh, for the country as a whole and have throughout our history. But, you know, it's it's interesting. Oftentimes when I'm I'm teaching and I say, you know, Black Americans are terribly American. Um, they got here well before most other Americans arrived. Mm. And yet we tend not to think of Black people as really actually American. You know, I, when I was a little kid, people would say, go back to Africa, mm. not realizing that, you know, where I grew up, their ancestors were people who came in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And my ancestors arrived on this continent before the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of going back, you know, wouldn't be um, something that even made sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and yet we still do that. We we don't think of Black Americans as, as being fundamentally from here. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we really do a, a mind game just to separate Black folks from the American experiment. But we're we're here and we've been here for a while. And I think if you tell our story and you center it for a bit, mm -hmm. uh, you end up with a different kind of understanding about what's possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I fully agree with that. I, I really resist this, whichever group or side is doing it, this idea that, you know, black folks aren't, are, you know, they have this experience that's not part of the American experience. And, and I think that obviously each uh, racial group has, uh, their own, you know, histories and cultures and norms, but, you know, and yes, I think you're absolutely right. In some ways, you know, black Americans have been here the longest. They've been here before many other folks and, um, their history is got all of these twists and turns ups and downs. And, and, but I don't think that you could ever say for, for, for folks currently that there's this piece of removal of this kind of Americanness. It's very, strange to to, to think of it certain way. tropes that we lean into and it's just one of them you know my other favorite one is that we're a country of immigrants and i'm like mm, native and black people have something to say about that <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting it's very interesting how i don't know people 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 sometimes when they emphasize these these kinds of um phrases or terms uh, you know, you're, you're emphasizing one thing and, and maybe even not intentionally excluding all the other things that we haven't really recognized, you know, and it's like, well, well wait a minute, what about all these other folks that have been here? Um, and I think, I certainly think the United States is a country of immigrants, but not only that, or not even primarily that it's that plus, you know, or it's, you know, there's other groups of folks that have uh, been here as well. So I think it's, it's a weird thing where, you know, people emphasize or overemphasize or underemphasize uh one more than the other i guess mm -hmm. the the question i have here about um 
about the the black working class for a minute is I, I don't want to make it a an either or. I think it's a probably both and. But where do you see, I guess, this kind of uh, intersection of kind of race and class, right? Because in, in a, many countries, class is the uh, kind of predominant uh, central theme, for better or for worse, right? You have people where it'll be a very big split. They'll be very, very, very poor, and then they'll be the very wealthy. And, and class is kind of the the big thing people will kind of notice. I feel like for for Black Americans, is it maybe a kind of both and kind of sorts where obviously there's a class piece of things, but then there's also a racial component as well. I, I And again, it's not to make it a either or, but how do you see these ideas of class? When you think of working class, we usually think of, you know, lower middle class or right in the middle middle class. Um, and so, you know, how does this apply, I guess, for, for black working class folks and uh, this idea of, of both uh, socioeconomic status and, um, and uh, race? I think for us, it's it's interesting, um, and it's it's got a different kind of history. Mm-hmm. Um, for most Americans, if you, you push them to describe themselves in class terms, they'll just say, "Oh, we're we're middle class." And so, you know, you'll have people who are, you know, making an hourly wage who would describe themselves that way, and you have people who are making like three hundred thousand dollars a year who would describe themselves that way, <laughs> depending on where they live and you know how they perceive themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so for Americans, class really doesn't have like core meanings mm-hmm. um, that make actual sense mm-hmm. based on like numbers or, or anything like that. And for Black Americans, I would say because for so much of our history, um, uh, Black people have been prevented from having um, the access to move up, mm-hmm. to have jobs that were white collar, to have other kinds of things. You had You ended up with Black people with great educations, who were college educated, who were doing hourly work, uh, working for tips, uh, being prevented from doing the kind of things that they were um, capable of doing. And then you had so many of us who, you know, that was the only possible option for them is to be of the working class. And so when we think of the, the Black working class experience, there's very few Black Americans who could say, I'm not directly to re- related to somebody in the working class, um, you know, uh, as I go and talk about this book with with different audiences, um, I'm hearing, uh, you know, my, my grandmother was a washerwoman, my grandmother was a domestic, my grandmother, you know, like so. There's nobody. My mother, um, my aunt, my, you know, everyone's got a very proximate story mm. for you, even if they are not currently um, doing working class labor, but many of them are in my audiences as well, mm. and so. Um, it it is, we are overrepresented in those ranks. And so it was an interesting place for us to, to start. Um, race, I think, you know, does this interesting intersection with class in this country because Black people are classed as not um, being able to be thought of as uh, the upper class, the elite, uh, for the most part. That, that there's a leveling that comes around Black life that makes it really difficult for um, the, the most wealthy Black people to really experience wealth in, in, in a parallel way with, with people who um, are white. Mm. 
in this country, um, in part because of their lack of intergenerational wealth, um, and in part because they would be related to people who are working class and need help. And so you would spend a lot of time, you know, helping a parent or a sibling or um, someone else. So the, the 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 funds you would earn at, you know, in a more elite job are used to support larger numbers of people. Um, as is true, you know, I mean, I, I'm an academic that works for a state, so it's not like I've ever been wealthy. Um, <laughs> but uh, at the same time, I'm also helping other people mm-hmm. in other households. Um, and and in, I have a three generation household, mm-hmm. and so um, oftentimes that doesn't have to happen because of intergenerational wealth and and, and others. You know that wealth gap um, is a reminder that um, the the black middle class is the least stable class mm-hmm. in the country. So that that race and our histories of race and the histories of dispossession um, destabilize those those notions, mm-hmm. and um, it doesn't really operate as cleanly in this country because of it. Yeah. I, I like the way you, you mentioned that about for, for folks that are for, for black Americans that are more affluent, or if you would say, you know, they're uh, wealthy, that's still going to be a different experience just because of, you know, they, they don't <laughs> wealthy black folks don't live on an Island somewhere. They're connected with obviously histories and family that maybe aren't maybe in that space or, or don't have uh, generations of that space, which I think is, uh, a, it's not something that I've thought about much. And I, I would imagine a lot of people haven't thought about it that way of like, well, that's, that's, that's much different than maybe it is for uh, a different type of experience for somebody else that maybe does have, you know, generations where they had at least, you know, a few wealthy people in their family or they were upper middle class and it was a little bit easier kind of just from the starting line. So that's a very interesting, uh, that's a very interesting kind of experience I can imagine. Um, so. You, you talk about in the book many, many things, um, and so we won't cover all of them, obviously. People should read the book. Yeah, uh, read the book. <laughs> um, so obviously, you do start in the beginning about uh, talking about the history of slavery in this country. Uh, many people have, have talked about, obviously, this this topic. Uh, it's, again, dark chapter in our history. Um, you, you make this, as, as it relates to your book, though, you make this link between this history of slavery and how black working class uh, folks were treated, you know, reformation and, and, and subsequently, um, how, how could you talk about how black folks coming to the U S not as immigrants, you, we mentioned this earlier, but as slaves. And, and I, and I do think one of the unique terribly, but one of the unique differences with slavery in this country is this removal of folks, you know, many hundreds of years ago, but removal from <clears throat> one continent, to another to be, you know, treated, uh, sold and treated, you know, worse than, you know, some animals. I mean, there's just terrible, terrible things, but that removal is a, is such a, unfortunately a unique aspect of, of, I think slavery here in the U S. So could you talk about how there's a, this distinction of, you know, black Americans or, or black folks coming to the U S not as immigrants. So this removal and then how that works kind of, how, how do we see the, uh, I guess the remnants of that in the black working class after that, which would be different than say Asians or Latinos or other people that do come here as immigrants. So there's um, the powerful need to remake because of that removal, because um, peoples are being sold um, 
by other Africans to Europeans and, and put in um, this what historians have called the triangle trade mm-hmm. um, and then drawn into the Americas. And they're separated. They're, they're purposely kept in ways that uh, prevented rebellion from occurring. So you would often be shuffled with people who spoke a language that you did not speak. Mm. Um, so you couldn't really remake exactly who you were before. Um, there were some connections, of course, and ties uh, culturally, but you had to figure those out and you had to, to figure out a, a common language and a common way of being in order to survive. You had to develop fictive kin if your folks were gone from you and you were separated as most people were. And so there is a, a remaking out of the remnants of memory that people have and the things that can survive, um, cultural practices, for example, survive better than language, uh, which is violently suppressed, right? Um, but there is this desire to survive and the desire to remake family that um, comes and is so important and so strong within the community of the enslaved. And because of that need for survival, that need for community, that need for faith, um, we become a new people. Mm. And that, that those people understand the value of their labor. They understand the power that it has on this, this new land and how it's making people wealthy and powerful. Mm. Um, and so they have a different relationship to work. They have a different relationship to the, those that they work alongside. And so when they come into freedom, they bring that with them. Mm-hmm. And they have a um, a real ethic of care and community that is quite profound because it's at the heart of who they are as a people. Mm. Yeah, you, you talk about this in the book about, as we mentioned before, that you know Black Americans are just as much an American story as any other group or, or race or ethnicity. And that Black Americans built and rebuilt vital spaces, such as communities, labor unions, um, obviously religious components as well. So how do we emphasize that story, right, which is, I think, part of what you're doing in the book, um, as, as well as not forsaking the tough historical facts of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation, all those other things. Basically, my my question here is, is how do we have this you know, you don't want to look at like, well, here, here, here's the resiliency pieces of it. And this is great. And look at you know, how we've a tough, continuously, a tough word, right? <laughs> right, right, right. We, we've done, we've done this, but you know, not, it's a balance, right? Obviously we, we, we do know many of um, the histories of, of segregation and slavery, but also there is these, these, these glimmers of hope throughout those periods too. And we, and I think there builds, you know, obviously strength and character how do you, how do you find that balance historically when you're telling you want to have an accuracy of our history that doesn't shy away from all of these tough you know aspects for hundreds of years, but also look at the um, the aspects that were able to give a lot of you know in this scenario in this case the black community you know some hope and some resilience and some strength as well. How do we tell those kind of different stories? I guess at the same time with with accuracy. I think for me, it's it's about Black humanity, right? So if we get to the point where we just say what happens to Black people and we take them out of the story, um, you get 
just the subjugation. You get just the suffering. Um, and, and those things are real and, and people survived what we think of as, as unthinkable. At the same time, they survive what we think of as unthinkable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's also an important part of the project to look at that survival and to look at the character uh, of those who survived and look at the belief systems that mm-hmm. made them um, come together in terrible circumstances. And, you know, it's a human story because oftentimes we face unthinkable things and terrible things and times that are quite hard. And so we can look to our past as an example of how people did that work, Mm. um, how we created communities of care in the midst of hard times. Mm. So I I don't think it is either an either or. Um, It's not a a way of trying to make it Pollyanna and fun. You know, Mm -hmm. isn't it great that everybody was enslaved because then they came together and had community, (laughs) you know? No, for me, it really is, um, you know, people suffered and and struggled and were part of a a worldwide system that made some people very wealthy and other people were destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's not to to paint that over, but to, to instead just put the, the person back at the, the heart of that question. Mm, yeah. Well, you, you do just that throughout the book. And uh, one of them is, uh, you mentioned, uh, I believe your ancestor, Henry, right? It was this uh, mm-hmm. blacksmith. And you, you kind of talk about that story, but then broaden it and say how many folks, you know, like him were able to, you, you talk about develop a working class mindset by earning these, uh, by, by making earnings on the, on the margins of enslavement. Uh, with small amounts of money on the side. Um, so I, how how is this kind of the, the the genesis or the kind of origins of what, you know, a working class, uh, a black working class where it's like, okay, yes, there's the enslavement, but I'm also going to try and and push a little here on, on, on this, if I can, and, and do this extra thing and, and make some money. You talk about the, the blacksmith, um, a trade and and how that the, you you see a little bit of this so maybe just chat about how that kind of formed and developed. So um, there were opportunities for some enslaved people in some circumstances um, if they were they had what was considered a, a skill if they were a carpenter a mason a bricklayer um, a blacksmith uh, to earn extra money and then also in uh, for the enslaved who lived in. Uh, rice planting cultures, particularly in South Carolina, for example, they were on a task system. And so oftentimes you see a variety of people selling um, vegetables or, or cooking dinners or doing having sort of small things that they, they did on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a an economy that exists. So it's just a reminder, I think, that the enslaved did not come out of slavery with no sense of mm-hmm. um, uh, what what an economy looked and felt like mm. um, that it was always very proximate to probably the majority of the enslaved that they understood that that was part of what was happening. Now those things weren't fair or equitable. Sure. Um, sometimes people were skilled and then just hired out, and all the funds would go back to the person who held them in bondage and, and things like that. For example, so um, not you know necessarily a, a liberatory pathway. 
for most, for some, it it, it could have been, Mm. you know, if they were able to negotiate that. Um, But it's just a reminder that the the enslaved were not completely divorced from the understandings of an economy. Mm. But I would argue that, you know, even those who did not have these particular skills understood uh, the wealth that was being generated from their labor and understood in their interactions with um, um, uh, poor free whites who were their supervisors, you know, what that world looked like. Um, Mm -hmm. People were paying close attention Mm -hmm. uh, all around them. And really, uh, we can see from the evidence of what happens in freedom uh, that they understood very well the place that they occupied Mm -hmm. in the world. So you you also I wanted to mention it here because I I know it's it's a it's a, it plays an important important uh, role culturally is is the church the church plays a, mm-hmm. a big role for for uh, Black Americans historically and currently how is I guess the church and you you kind of mentioned it there of you have <clears throat> early on you have people coming from all these different parts of Africa so it wasn't all just a monolith right nobody spoke the same language and we're able to have the same it's all different what do you think it was I guess you know as you know, time went on, how the church became instrumental in having this, like their own space, like this was their their own space, their own kind of environment, and how that kind of, that idea of the, one's own space and environment um, could, could say, well, how do, you know, as we see later on in history, there's this idea of how do they do that for, you know, economically or or vocationally, uh, in a working class system, I guess just talk about the role that 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 space and environment with the with the church played for for uh, Black Americans. So you know the, the enslaved Africans were people of faith. They had existing faiths when they came, um, and as you said, you know um, it would it would be difficult to to maintain those faiths whole cloth um, because of the disruption the the rupture and the disruption. Those are separate words uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, of what happened to them. And yet pieces of it survive, songs, um, rituals, all those kinds of things. And, and so that you see those things imbued into um, a, a radical Christianity that, that develops over time among the enslaved. Um, also pieces of, of Muslim faith. There were, there were those who were enslaved who were Muslim in, in West Africa and so you see those residual beliefs. Um, you see hope of folks who maintain their beliefs um, um, separate from Christianity as well. But all of these things happen in resistance, right? None of this is um, promoted by those who hold them in bondage. Uh, they wanted a sort of very stilted religion, if one at all, mm. uh, for the enslaved. So they meet in secret. They they build community. They pray for one another. They they combine those old rituals with with new beliefs. Uh, they clandestinely learn um, it's illegal for the enslaved to learn how to read and write. But they clandestinely learn that the Bible is actually a liberatory text uh, full of enslaved people who are striving to get free. And huh, look at that. And so uh, they really um, saw themselves in that text and embraced that radical possibility of a vision of freedom and a future. And God's favor, and they 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 connect it to themselves, and and it becomes a, a means of survival. It becomes a means of supporting one another and and strengthening them for a terrible fight uh, for freedom. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting because I 
I see, you know, many people will know that, you know, the church is still a pretty big, uh, has a big role in, 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 in black communities. And whether you're the most religious person or not, it is mm-hmm. a very strong cultural thing, which it, there's a, there's such a, a unique history there for, for that, which I think it's is... the first real black institution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a space where people can talk to each other, mm-hmm. frankly, where they can support their own, yeah. um, and so many of those secret churches become real churches mm-hmm. in freedom mm-hmm. and um, they they bolster people in surviving uh, that reconstruction time period and into Jim Crow as indep- independent institutions mm-hmm. uh, that that can be the the ground by which politics can give birth and support can give birth. And mm-hmm. so um, there's no it's no accident that they are often targeted mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and attacked mm-hmm. uh, when. Um, when black people are organizing uh, in throughout uh, American history, because they are that, that one independent institution. Mm, yeah. So you have, I think it's two chapters in the book on uh, black washer women, which was, they were absolutely fascinating. Uh, it's not, it's not a lot I knew about that history. And so it was, it was wonderful to, to read about uh, and learn a lot of these, these different things. So, um, could you give, I guess, the overview of this type of work, how it was received in the in the segregated South, and uh, there was this there was this wild stat you put in the book that that black women made up only eleven percent of U.S. population in nineteen hundred, but did sixty five percent of uh, the work that washerwomen did, which is absolutely wild. So how did that progress and change over time? And so just kind of give us the overview here of of this kind of or this 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 type of work that was being being done for many years. So um, most of us live in, you know, homes that have washing machines in them, or we go to a laundromat where everything, you can get your laundry done. Mm -hmm. Um, But that doesn't really exist until hmm, probably the 1950s. And And even then it wasn't, you know, widespread, right? (laughs) People were still washed, hanging stuff outside and everything. (laughs) Yes, it was still a new technology. You know, it's probably not till the 1960s where you have like a lot of households with both a washer and a dryer inside Mm of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the the work of doing laundry by hand is quite arduous, um, requires making soap, boiling water, uh, adding bluing chemicals to get whites white, Listen, ironing all those things by hand. I don't like putting it in the thing and clicking a button and taking it out. I mean, and, and then folding it and putting it away pff, sucks. No one likes doing it. So, I mean, that we complain about that. It was so different, you know, 70 years ago. It was so yes. different. It was a whole, yes. it was like a day. It was like a whole thing. It, it was, was, a, it was just, a week. It was yeah, a whole week. It's, 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 <laughs> the whole thing. It's, oh, goodness. And so black women did that work. Um, and of course, when they were in bondage, they did that for everybody. Um, uh, Harriet Tubman sets up a wash house uh, for the Civil War soldiers and, and staffs it with black women. So they sort of become like key to the war effort um, under her guidance. Um, it, it's historically those women were experts in doing that work. And so when they become free, they're like, oh. So we're going to keep doing this work, but we're going to do it the way that we want to. And so in my research, I I discovered that they systematically decided that, you know, this work would not happen in concert with doing other kinds of household chores. It would not be you would be the maid and the washerwoman. It would not happen inside of white homes under white supervision. They would take the laundry out. They would wash it at home on a schedule. They would bring it back at the end of the week. And 
um, that schedule and that autonomy um, really becomes the universal standard in the American South. I mean, I'm sure there's someone who did it differently somewhere, but, you know, in mass, uh, that's what happened. And that's that's Black women's determination. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's labor organizing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a, a really powerful reminder that they understood completely uh, the value that they had um, with a real monopoly on this labor. Mm-hmm. And um, they weren't paid a lot, but they could determine how the work was done mm-hmm. and under what conditions. And, and those conditions created um, a buffer ag- against um, sexual assault from mm-hmm. being inside white homes. Mm-hmm. It provided time for them to create their own households, which they could not do as enslaved women. Mm-hmm. And it gave them time to raise their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, mm-hmm. uh, the way they saw fit. And so it's a it's a really uh, first powerful work-from-home movement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think reading about it and, and, and kind of hearing the the independence and the autonomy or beginning to have that in, in the ways that you listed was, I think, uh, was, was super illuminating. I think, I guess one question on that is, obviously there's, I mean, even still today, obviously there's some terrible remnants, but for a long time into the 20th century, you know, the South uh, has not always been uh, the best place for for Black folks. I mean, and, 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 you know, kind of, you know, global or, um, you know, state by state or region by region. I mean, obviously we talk about uh, Jim Crow South and, and segregation. That's not to say that those things didn't happen in other places as well. Segregation right? was invented uh, in the north, right? Right. So it happened, <laughs> it happened everywhere. Free first free populations were the first segregated population. So when you see gradual emancipation in the north, mm. that's where it began. So in Massachusetts and New York mm-hmm. State mm. are the first segregation laws. So mm. um, uh, Jim Crow is American. Yeah, yeah. It's a good, it's a good <laughs> reminder. It's a good reminder. That's my it's, first book. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to get you back on for that one. Okay. But uh, but the. Uh, I guess for this piece here, for for the washerwomen, was it different in certain parts of the country? So, like how, how the, the treatment, or even in terms of pay, or what they could or couldn't do. How how was this um, received? I guess whether it was in the Midwest or the North or the South or wherever. What, how did it? I guess look different, or what was the variance um, uh, in different parts of the country? I think you know, for the most part, there were there were some. Um, greater autonomy and a, a less of a threat um, for Black women who were in different parts of the country in terms of you know, how you could use what you earn to upbuild a, a life. Mm. Um, but for the most part, you know, they weren't prosperous anywhere unless they, you know, the the, the, the prosperity that we could see and, and, you know, prosperity with a little, little tiny piece is really through collectivity, you know, when women who banded together um, to, to cover more households um, as a group, um, folks who were known for their particular skills, who had several different households or, or maybe started to employ different women to work for them in their own yards, um, those kinds of things. And so we see some variation, but but washerwomen are never really valued in any part of the country. Um, as, 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 um, and it's not a, a variance that I would say really mattered. Uh, but, but Black women were attracted to the work because of the the independence and the space mm-hmm. and safety mm-hmm. from sexual assault. Mm-hmm. 
you talk about some of the union efforts that uh, washerwomen were involved in, whether it's Atlanta in 80, 1881, Raleigh in mm -hmm. 1873 and 85, mm -hmm. Richmond in 1904. I guess how was there, obviously there were many things going on. We'll, we'll talk about some unions in a minute, but how was their involvement uh, a part of this kind of developing black working class to say, here's what we want, here's how we want to do things, here's some of our... Um, I don't want to say demands, but how how do we have these 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 things that we're asking for to be to be treated? Um, to be, well, what, I guess what was their kind of uh, part of the story in these union efforts uh, at different points? I think it's important to remember that you know oftentimes when we talk about unions, we think of it as um, needing someone on the outside to create a consciousness to tell people how to think about it, you know, that you have to go in there, you have to organize the people, you have to tell them, you have to teach them, mm -hmm. and then, you know, they'll they'll move once mm -hmm. they have that that training. Um, my favorite organization of, of washerwomen is in 1865 in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, so they come out of enslavement and immediately organize a set of demands, um, demanding a living wage, mm -hmm. demanding uh, time off for Sundays, demanding to do the work on their own, um, and saying that, you know, everybody needs to join or they're going to get in trouble with them, right? So, the, you know, straight straight union outlook from the very beginning. And, and so no one came in and no one gave them consciousness. And they had been in bondage, you know, a, a few weeks before. And they had a full sense of what they needed as workers. And so for me, um, washerwomen are a reminder. Now, oftentimes they would join other union efforts and they would join in, in efforts to, to challenge segregation and uh, disfranchisement. But boy, they understood um, the power of their work and the power of collectivity from the very beginning. And, and no consciousness uh, raising from the outside was necessary. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a really important point because I think we tend to think about it that way from the outside. Mm -hmm. let's, let's train and, and educate and hear. And, and it sounds like it's like, we no, think we, of uh, we think of working class people as not being intellectuals. Right, right. No, I mean, but listen, I mean, if if anybody studied any of those movements of of union uh, efforts, especially in different parts of our our history, different types of folks in different groups, yeah, even even more currently too. I mean, there's uh, people people uh, that are organized and thoughtful. They, they've thought about it, and it's hard work, and it takes a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 definitely interesting to to think about again some more of those, those, those stereotypes. So uh, I've read this part in the book. So you have this, you have this great line. So this is, I, I read this and I said, Ooh, this is a, this is interesting, uh, interesting topic here. Uh, there's this great line you have, which says the artificial standards of white femininity, the real status of a household, notwithstanding were dependent on black washerwomen. So <laughs> I could I could see this being a little a little dicey. I don't want to pit it as black versus white. I know that's terrible, but how how do you see these dynamics between black women and white women at this time? As that that line illustrates, and you know, basically the way I read that is, you know, white women have they want this standard, they want this way of of living, and how how they want to have these things about what it means to be you know feminine. But that's on on the backs of, of 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 black women doing this type of work, something that maybe, uh, maybe white women didn't do, right? As you as mm -hmm. we mentioned earlier, sixty five percent 
of laundry work, of, yeah. of, of, of laundry workers were, were, were doing that or were black women, excuse me. So I guess talk about that uh, first at the time. And then how do we see uh, echoes of that still today? My favorite story that I found was um, of um, a former slaveholder who all, all of his slaves had, had left the plantation, of course, after freedom. And there was no one there to do the laundry. And he had daughters. And he was a, an elderly man, but he said he would do the laundry uh, for the family before shaming his daughters into doing it. And so for me, that was like, oh, okay, that's, yeah, that's that's a powerful and interesting example. Yeah. That to for to have his his daughters be in the yard, be seen, you know, boiling the water and making soap and hanging the clotheslines would be such a, a degradation in the middle of losing the entire world as they knew it, right? So everything was gone. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the value that, that they had in the enslaved was gone. The, the world was torn up in war. And mm-hmm. God forbid his daughters wash their own clothes. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was like a, a life lesson on like, okay, this is what it meant. And this is why Black women had a monopoly on the job. Because no matter what was going on, uh, women who were quite poor, who couldn't afford someone to clean their home or cook inside their home or wash their children, would pay Black women to wash their clothes because it was seen as Black people's work. Mm. And that that line, that the, the line that created um, between Black and white in, in, uh, during enslavement stood um, in freedom. So, so much so that that work was so stigmatized that mm. white women did not want to do it. Do we, do we, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty astounding. I mean, how do we see that, I guess, to today? I mean, mean, there's certain jobs, uh, certain in terms of the workforce. I mean, I guess you could make it more socially or culturally too, but where no one's saying it, but, you know, this is the work that, you know, black folks are going to do, but maybe, maybe not so much, you know, white women or, or white folks. I mean, how? How do we see, I guess, traces of that still? I had a, um, I taught at NC State for 20 years and I had a student who was um, an engineering student and he was taking my class for requirements, but he's very earnest and came to my office hours pretty much every week and <laughs> talked over things. He wasn't used to reading long books and things like that because <laughs> of his feel, um, but he was a real good kid and very earnest young white man. And he said, oh, Dr. Kelly, I have my, my big job interview for my, my engineering job. And, you know, I think he was a box engineer or something. You know, he like made some boxes so things didn't break in on the inside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he was going to interview at this factory for this important engineering position. And he came back that next week and he said, Dr. Kelly, he said, I saw the space in a way I wouldn't have seen it before. He said, I saw who was working on the floor, making the boxes. I saw who was supervising. I saw who was the executive in the company. And he said, I saw who was cleaning. Mm-hmm. And he said, they were all separate. And I, I, I never would have seen that before your class. I never would have even thought mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there were lines. He's like, so if I, if I go to work for this place, I, I don't want those lines to, to stay like that. I, I want to challenge that because I just wouldn't have noticed it. 
And so I think, you know, if we all are a little bit more conscious about how we we look at working spaces, we will see those lines um, and and hopefully we'll begin to challenge them wherever we are uh, to to make sure that there are pathways for us to to not um, remake racial division um, by default. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I fully I fully agree. So you talk about this. uh Great migration, uh, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, in this part, uh, we can, we'll come to it later. But you you do you talk about uh, some of some of the the areas uh, close to home for me on on you know over here in Maryland in the Eastern mm-hmm. Shore, which is uh, mm-hmm. I read that with much interest. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. So this great migration, how is it transformative for a lot of uh, working uh, class Black folks? How did it? impact region and communities and environments. And um, I think uh, you say that there's uh, 6 million uh, Black folks left the South and came to places in the Northeast and the Midwest and the West. Um, How much of this, I think you you make it somewhere in the book about that this was fleeing some of the oppressive nature of where they were and not just let's seek a better opportunity somewhere. And so I guess maybe talk about that, that great migration and some of the uh, the rationale or the reason for for so many folks doing that at, at, at that time. Um, so um, historians talk about the the push and the pull of the migration. Um, they were, of course, leaving places, um, sometimes under direct threat. You know, I believe um, my family that was in Eastern Shore of Maryland, there was a, a family member who was accused of of something against a white person, and my the entire broad family who had been there um, in slavery and freedom it were free before civil war had some land left it all mm. and, and evacuated um, my family in South Carolina seems to have done the same thing I don't even know quite why mm. um, but they left Newberry South Carolina and I moved in, in mass to Thomasville and then eventually on to Philadelphia and the Philadelphia area and so uh, oftentimes people were, were, were running to escape uh, lynching and violence and attacks and accusations from local whites, uh, murders, uh, any number of, of things that, that happened to people to make them run. Mm. Um, other people were just fed up. Um, you know, I start the, the book with my ancestor, uh, Solicitor Duncan, who was a sharecropper and, and realized that he was never going to make any money sharecropping. Um, that the the landholder was going to say he owed money over and over again and and tie him in perpetuity to the space. So he had to run. Mm-hmm. My mother always said, like a, like a slave. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so many people were just so frustrated with um, the lack of opportunity uh, that they thought, let's see if we can have opportunity maybe in a small Southern town. And then, you know, others were saying, you know, let's go to this Chicago, let's go to this Philadelphia, New York. Let's um, from Texas, they would go out West Um, from Louisiana. They would go to Detroit, Ohio. Um, The the train routes would, would carve out the ways in which people moved. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes they would have family members who were already there. So they would try to remake community. Um, There was a broad community of people from the Eastern shore of Maryland and Virginia and Philadelphia, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, both my grandparents were from the Eastern Shore. My, my grandmother's from Eastern Shore of Maryland. And my grandfather's from the Eastern Shore of Virginia. They did not know each other until they got to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure there was some little clicks going on up there um, <laughs> where they would meet each other. And so um, those those kinds of um, escapes 
uh, were a big push, but they were quick to um, also hope that these other spaces would offer better economic opportunities, a relief from some of the seg- uh, segregation and uh, domination that was happening in the South. And they, and they were, right? You know, the mm-hmm. sort of everyday mm-hmm. uh, insult of segregation in, that existed in the Southern cities was gone, mm-hmm. but they were confronted with awful housing and, and very small job opportunities, uh, particularly in the first generations. Yeah, one of the ways that uh, people will question if uh, if Maryland is part of the South, and uh, it it uh, it is part, part of, the, of South. the South. It is part of the South, it and is. I always I always point to people. I say, go to uh, St. Mary's County in Southern Maryland, or go out to uh, go out to the Eastern Shore, uh, and 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 you'll see you'll see it's lots below of, the Mason Dixon line. You'll it see is. remnants. You'll see remnants there. <laughs> There's a lot of remnants there. And I remember reading that in the book and I was like, you know, I, I know from today and I, I mean, I've, you know, traveled my whole state and, and the Eastern shore is, is very different than the Western shore. Most of Maryland, this side of the Bay. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't even imagine even, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, 120 years ago, you know, what it was like to come from the Eastern shore then to even Baltimore or even or even Philadelphia. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. a totally different world in some ways. People that grow up and they're they're around there uh, that that region, uh, and then you're dealing with all of these direct threats. You know, okay, going and, and leaving that area, which is you know rural in some aspects, and then going to a city is a whole other set of issues and challenges. Especially if you haven't been there. I mean, that's a very uh, that, even though it's again, you're talking about the same state or the the next state over, um, quite different, quite different again to this kind of what you're saying, this whole remaking again kind of idea. Yes, uh, yeah. is I, I I that stuck out to me, and maybe again it's just because it's you know my my backyard or whatever. But I was I was very much struck by that idea of kind of uprooting and going to a different um, region. I guess is and it's yeah. very it is very regionally. Uh, it's different. It is. Yeah, I was thinking about that when I was looking at one of the oral histories that I use of uh, the woman who migrates from uh, Minnie, who uh, Mm -hmm. uh, migrates from Accomack County Mm -hmm. um, around the same time that my grandfather does um, into Philadelphia and just getting off the train Mm -hmm. in the middle of Philadelphia must have been Mm -hmm. um, striking. And she's a teenager, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm-hmm. And just trying to make her way, and so it it it's a, again that reminder of the humanness, of the survival of the you know, um, of for me that there is so much to admire in, in the folks who who were able to to brave these challenges and and make a make a life for themselves. Mm. So I have I have two two kind of big uh, two last big kind of uh, I guess topics here which we can, can hit which is one is you talk about the all black railroad union and the mm. and the brotherhood of uh, the, the sleeping, sleeping car porter yeah, yeah. Uh, in in thirty six nineteen thirty six mm-hmm. and there there was an emphasis on fair pay equal protection equal opportunity uh, and the Pullman uh, company that was also involved in, in helping workers I guess the one question I have here is. What makes, I guess, this distinct or sets it apart being an all-black a railroad union from other types of unions that we hear about? Just kind of, we were talking in the beginning. It's kind of the, the white working class and their unions that they did. Again, not a 
either, you know, kind of pitted against each other. But I want to know some of the distinctive features for, obviously, again, different, different, um, there's, I think, a lot of things that maybe are uniting people, people of any sort want to have equal pay and equal or fair pay to me, equal protection. I think a lot of people that are doing a union want that. But I guess what are some of the distinctive features of of this this union? So again, it's the accident of a monopoly. Um, George Mortimer Pullman, who was the founder of the Pullman Palace Car Company, um, who creates the the comfortable sleeping car on um, long distance trains. Um, he uh, rents these trains out with black workers on board. Um, um, you know, let's think about the racial politics of renting the, the men to these train train companies. Um, but they they work for the Pullman Company. They never work for the the, the train companies because he's trying to create um, what he believes will be a romantic um, hearkening back to enslavement. You know, having a black manservant waiting on you hand and foot, providing any requests as you travel on the train, um, and that they would be. Um, elegant and understated and quiet and uh, not too educated and um, but slightly educated enough so that they could be of, of service. And so he thought of black men as the perfect um, Pullman porter. And so they they take those jobs in mass. Eventually, there are a few uh, Filipino Asian workers who are hired on the West Coast to do Pullman porter work. But the overwhelming majority of the Pullman porters were black men. So much so it becomes the largest private employer of black people in the country. Mm. And so they begin to organize a union. They're really reliant on tips. Um, there's really no limitation on how many hours they'll be tasked with working. Sometimes they have to um, ride a train to another location to start working and then they don't get paid for that time. And, you know, it was a real exploitative kind of um, sense of um, what was what you were do to do this kind of work. And so um, they begin to organize. It takes them more than a decade of, of really fighting the, the Pullman company tooth and nail. They have um, the company employs spies and uh, tries to set up a fake union. They do all kinds of internecine work to try and uh, foil the union. But um, folks like A. Philip Randolph and C.L. Dellums are really wonderful, articulate uh, visionaries for what can happen. And they, they, they speak with the voice of these Pullman porters um, who know what they're owed and, and go to great lengths to sacrifice um, to, to get it. And what becomes powerful about um, this union when it's successful in the wake of the New Deal uh, with new legislation uh, is that they don't care just about the Pullman porters. They immediately uh, pivot to concerns about Black workers in general, mm -hmm. about demanding access for um, defense workers to be hired, Black workers to be in those defense jobs in the war, that they have equal opportunity. And so FDR is pushed to um, put in place executive orders that give equal access to federal employment for black workers in, in those industries. And they become the basis by which uh, the civil rights movement has, a, has another foundation. And they use their mobility, their organizational heft, not just to improve their own circumstances, but to, to really lift black people as a whole. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a powerful um, union 
and that it's not just, you know, a, a selfish exploit, but really that, that again, back to that collective ethic mm. uh, that that comes out of enslavement. Yeah, and it sounds like it's it, it becomes more expansive. I mean, you talk about a decade, that's a long time to work on something. Absolutely. And, you know, still having to deal with, you know, while you're working on it, the things you're working for, you still have to go through as you patiently have to keep waiting for. So it's, it's, it's again, just tremendous uh, determination and, 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 and grit in a lot of ways. Um, so you talk about also uh, black maids. Mm-hmm. You mentioned things like um, the help and you talk about uh, mm-hmm. mammies which were, were, you know, these types of stereotypes that we've had um, of workers in the past. Could you talk about how those stereotypes arose, uh, how we do or don't see them today? And I mean, when when I read this chapter, I I couldn't, I could see it in the other ones too, but I just from this one with with Black Maids, I, I couldn't imagine not understanding that without having an understanding of, slavery in the united states i mean there just Mm -hmm. seems i don't know there just seems to be this like a a lot of this um it's not necessarily linear but that there is a kind Mm. of through line there Mm -hmm. and i mean i think you'd have to be pretty foolish and dumb to not see that i mean for Mm -hmm. anyone reading it uh uh, you know um faithfully i think to see that so i guess talk about that and 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 how we had these these you know terrible stereotypes and things like that I think, um, you know, it's really a a great question to to connect it to. And there really is, you know, literal policy loopholes Mm -hmm. that provide the space so that in the middle of the 20th century, um, Black women doing domestic labor are excluded from the labor protections that come in in the New Deal and and in its wake. Um, They are not bound to a set number of hours in a day. They're not bound to a base pay um, by hour, and they are not protected with the social safety net, um, in part because Southern legislators and you know people who hired them in households didn't want to pay that much or to be um, limited in how much work could be given, particularly to women who served as domestic uh, live-in servants. Um, like my grandmother, um, Brunel Duncan, who I write about in the book. Um, so th- they would live in the household with white families. Uh, they would wake up often at dawn to sort of get the day started and start meals, cook, clean, um, d- do laundry in those machines that were now in the house. Um and really watch children, uh, make dinner, uh, help host a dinner party, uh, watch children if folks went out for the evening. Mm-hmm. And so that they ended up with these extraordinarily long days where they were really obligated, um, isolated from each other, isolated from their families and from their own children, um, and not uh, able to really have very many rights, of, of, um, not much privacy. Oftentimes their their beds would be in basements or in closets or hallways, um, pallets, roll up pallets that they were forced to sleep on to do this labor. And so it was really extraordinarily hard for an entire generation of, of Black women. Um, and, but it, these were the jobs that they could get 
Uh, and it was powerful for me to see um, that the number of domestic women, uh, domestic women doing domestic labor increased uh, as we went into the 20th century. You know, oftentimes we, we think of it, you know, as that through line between slavery and freedom. But, but women were coming out of agricultural work and going into domestic work um, through the Second World War. Uh, my one of my favorite realizations is that you know this image of Rosie the Riveter, the the, the white woman worker called to defense work um, because her husband is um, drafted abroad to fight in the war. Rosie the Riveter has a black woman maid. Mm. Uh, There's someone to watch her children to keep her household going. Mm. Uh, black women were oftentimes um, not um, hired in these better paying domestic, I mean, um, industrial jobs during the war and instead could really only serve in domestic roles. And so it's uh, an interesting, it's, there's a through line, but there's also, you know, the particularities of uh, these histories and, and the changing shape of the economy um, that that makes it quite something. So two things here. One is it just, I know, <sighs> I'm trying tread carefully on this. When when people talk about, I guess, women's rights and the history of women's rights in the United States, it is, I think, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, again, I'm not the historian, but for 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 white women, when you talk about suffragettes and being able to vote in 1920 and the whole thing, and then being able to work uh in the workforce starting then I guess after you know post World War II, nineteen fifties and sixties and going to the seventies. But that it just seems like there's a different um pa- parallel reality, but an unequal one for, for black women. I mean is that yeah. is that is that too pedestrian to say or no how? I mean I, I you know I can't find the generation of women in my family that did not work. You know, so coming out of slavery black women worked. Mm-hmm. Um they did Domestic labor, they did agricultural labor, they did fab- factory work. Mm. There were there really is no generation of black women who don't in mass work, mm. in majority work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, again, if we don't tell um, working class women's stories through um, black women's stories, mm-hmm. we're we're missing mm-hmm. a big part of it. And black women participating in those su- suffragette movements mm-hmm. as well um mm-hmm. and they are calling out uh the particularities of black women mm-hmm. they are calling for um women's clubs uh, they're calling for nursery care and and they start some of the first um public urban nurseries in the united states for for black women mm-hmm. um and so we we, we change the narrative mm-hmm. where the the you know scenarios in the coal mine of, of what will be American women's challenges in the workforce. Mm-hmm. The the second point I had on that was, you know, you're talking about the kind of live-in maid situation. And again, this kind of goes to kind of the distinction here. So, you know, you know, I'm 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 Latin and and so part of my uh you know history that, that I understand about various places in Latin America, it's not everywhere, but certain places in, in Latin America will have a similar kind of thing. You know, usually if you want to call it upper middle class or more affluent um, Latin folks, usually in kind of big major capital cities up and down the Western hemisphere, you know, in, in more modern times, we'll have live-in maids, 
right? Mm -hmm. You know, people that they hire and they pay them and maybe not great, but, you know, they pay them and it's a job and they work long hours, things like that, and maybe have them, you know, you know, have them stay there, or have a room for them, things like that. And it is a kind of a privileged or kind of elite thing, uh, you know, that, that certain places in Latin America do, but it feels, again, each country has its own history and stuff, but that just feels different than having black folks do that because of, because of the history, well, because of the history. Because of the history, the history, the history here is like, well, wait a minute. I mean, there's, how do you, how do you have this, this discussion or this, I don't want to say debate, but this discussion of how do we have, if you're paying somebody and you're paying somebody for, 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 for work that they're doing, but also knowing that maybe it's not completely fair treatment. Mm-hmm. regardless of where it's at but then mm-hmm. also because of mm-hmm. uh somebody's uh you know what opportunities or what accessibility do they have to doing certain things if that's the only job you can get or or that's yes. the one that you're you're hired that's the one you're chosen for mm-hmm. and again each country is different um and again i don't know the history of every country but it, it just feels a little bit different because of like there's such a you're, for for black folks this was happening during you know, segregation. This was, you know, a hundred years or so post Civil War. Like that, that almost feels, I mean, that feels too close in some ways where it's like, yes, you have, you know, you're, you're not enslaved. Okay. There's that freedom piece. Yes. You're being paid. Yes. You can uh, have some things, but it's still not, it's not, it's not fair, fair pay. It's not good protection. It's not how we would have many other things. And I don't know how it would be other places, but I don't know. Is, is that, I mean, I don't know how it is today. I don't know if people still do that. Today. Do people still do that today? Do people have like you know, nannies? I mean, I have no idea. They do. They I, have do. Not, I just, how do we, how do we have that conversation? I guess is my question. How I do we have that? You know, it, it's powerful when you think, um, there's a really rich literature of uh, people thinking about the shared conditions that household workers uh, deal with. Most in most places in the world, household workers are the dispossessed. Mm. Um, they are. They tend to be um, the least powerful. They tend to be um, indigenous or foreign mm. or mm. black or um, first generation to a country. Um, they tend to suffer from stereotypes. They mm-hmm. tend to suffer from um, a lack of concern about their whole lives, you know, their children, their families, their needs. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to be uh, suffer from a terrible anonymity mm-hmm. um, where people don't pay attention to the things that they really need in ways that we might pay attention to, you know, if we we're, a manager at our job, we might think, oh, well, she just had a baby. Da, da, da. This is how it's going to work. You know, for a few weeks, she's going to have to do this or that, the mm-hmm. other thing. And they would, you know, negotiate with a, um, a worker to set up circumstances that work better for her. And, and oftentimes, um, domestic workers aren't given that same grace or understanding or even thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, the example of the Black women who are doing this work, um, parallel some of the, the the same kinds of um 
lack of concern that that we have for women doing this kind of work today. And um, we can do better. And mm-hmm. um, I bet if you look at some of those countries you're thinking about, there is there are layers of exploitation oh, and dispossession oh, oh, that are at play. So I'm, so I'm positive that's probably the case, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, I'm pro- Listen, I'm sure there is. I mean, it's terrible. Each, again, each country's got its own history. Yeah. I just, I don't know how I feel about that. I, I think I think I the way to to feel about it is just to you know to to think um, substantively about what workers deserve. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. About yeah. you know boundaries and limitations and advocacy for um, you know fair pay and and really stop atomizing those situations. Right? You know, so you know you are the employer; they are the employee. So you mm-hmm. start to think, oh well, I don't have that much money, but I really do need help. You know, so that's kind <laughs> right, of right. logics that people slip into yeah. instead of saying this is a person who has a household and a, mm-hmm. a family, mm-hmm. and they have their time; they have their own. Mm-hmm. interests and mm-hmm. and how do i respect those things how do i thank them how do i appreciate them how do i give them pay time off how do i see that they have access to health care and you know the, the things they need to to be in my household mm-hmm. and you know black women that i study um my grandmother didn't have those things you know she didn't i i put a story in the, the book about my mother coming to visit her across philadelphia and then um she not being allowed to take my my mom back home. Um, and so she put her on a streetcar with a note around her neck uh, tied to a ribbon before my mother could read and said, look for a black woman and, and sit next to her and, and ask her to help you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so my preschool age mother sitting on the streetcar in Philadelphia going home because her employer wouldn't let her take her child home. Um, you know, these are the kinds of reminders that, that women are leaving their children by themselves to, to cook and clean in mm-hmm. households for days at a time because they don't have any alternative. Mm-hmm. That those kinds of things were happening to them because they didn't have the power or the representation from the country mm-hmm. um, to do something different. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear these stories and it, it's 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 always like almost disarming. Like I I know they happen, I know they're real, but it's every time you hear it, it's like how how did how did how do we how do we have that happen to people? And like I just it just it always is is a I think a a good real reminder uh, and 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 think we we can continue to progress better. So I guess the uh, last two questions here is is what about currently? So. What does the current, you know, black working class, you know, look like? You you talk about some stuff with uh, folks that worked in the USPS. You talk about some of the workers during the pandemic. Um, I guess you you know you could talk about either one of those things. But I guess my main question here is, you know, how do we think about uh, the black working class, you know, in twenty twenty three and 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 currently, and and you know, how do we have you know, good conversations uh, collectively and, and 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 individually about about uh, about black working folks. I think we have to make sure that we are um, thinking about the humanity of workers today. Mm-hmm. That we are figuring out ways that we can support folks who want to do union work, uh, who want a living wage, mm-hmm. who deserve access to to good health care, pay time off. Um, you know, the pandemic. Dr- drew into sharp relief um, the the degree to which the uh, many essential workers are 
were black workers, were mm-hmm. um, Latin day workers, were uh, folks who don't have a lot of rights. Um, I I go to a, a traditional um, African American church here in my community, and many of the men and women I I go to church with, they were never off. Mm-hmm. They were never not at work uh, during the pandemic. They didn't experience this sort of you know a month of of being in the house and not being at work. They were the essential workers, mm-hmm. and they were working every day through all of that. Um, some of their colleagues. Uh, were sickened. Some of their colleagues did not survive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to use this moment to think substantively about what workers deserve, um, about the humanity of those workers, about their own households, their own lives, their futures, and how we can build up a society that rewards um, labor because it's all important. It's all skilled. It's all uh, vital to our survival as a nation. And we have to get out of the the idea that um, some people are going to be at this lower strata and that's just what it is. Mm-hmm. And you should just work harder because everybody's working hard and we and all those folks are, are needed. Um, I'm very concerned about, um, and I'm thinking about writing a, a new project that sort of draws a closer attention to the gig economy and the way in which automation of um, driving may have an effect on the black working class mm-hmm. um, going forward. And it's it's a really powerful set of questions and, and um, ethical questions that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think this history uh, forces us to ask. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, the book is called Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class. It's out uh, everywhere now. Uh, you're, you're, uh, you've been doing a... a Looks like an awesome uh, tour for the for the for the book. Uh, so, where's the I guess the best place for people to to see you or reach you online, or where are the best places to get at you? My favorite haunt is still Twitter. <laughs> that sinking ship that it is, um, and I'm P- Prof like P R O F B L M Kelly on Twitter. Um, I also have Instagram with the same handle, mm-hmm. and I'm um, I'm a faculty at UNC. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's great, uh, Lara. This was such a, a lovely conversation. Really, really wonderful. Uh, I learned a lot from your book. I was super enriched from uh, talking with you about it. And thank you so much for your time and your energy. I'm, I'm uh, very, very, very grateful and uh, very pleased that we could have the conversation. Thanks for having me. It was great. Yeah, absolutely.